I'd say three huge spheres where business's mission works tremendously. It's, it's among unreached peoples where you can't access in just about any other way because of uh, government restrictions. It's among the impoverished peoples for obvious reasons because you're, you're stimulating economic activity, you're creating jobs, and it works in the secular context really well. So unreached, impoverished, and secular. The Mission Matters Podcast is a partnership between 1615 and Missio Nexus, who have a shared passion to mobilize the people of God to be a part of His mission. Well, welcome to the podcast. This is Matthew Ellison, president of 1615. And of course, I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Ted Esler, president of Missio Nexus. And today we have a special guest, Joao. Did I get that right, brother? Yes, sir. You got All it. All right. Mordormo. Hey, my friend, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently up to? Yeah, thank you. So good to be with you guys. Love what you do um, and am honored to be with you today. My go-to answer, and I mean this with all sincerity, what drives me, I want to see Christ proclaimed and exalted among all peoples. And so whatever I do uh, has to align with that vision. So I co-founded an organization called Crossover Global 30, more, over 30, 35 years ago, we plant churches among unreached peoples. So, so that kind of is the, the sh short and simple answer, but in order to be able to do the work that we're called to do, um, we, I, I've gotten involved for the, over 20 years in developing something called business as mission. So crossover global is loaning me to BAM global. So I've been a, a co-chair of BAM Global, non-executive, um, for as long as we've existed. But starting next week, I, I'll be the executive director of BAM Global as well. And that kind of overlaps with my responsibility with uh, Lausanne. I'm a what they call a catalyst. So it's a network leader. Basically, I co-lead the, the business's mission network in the Lausanne movement. Uh, I, I teach adjunctively at a couple of different universities. So... Yeah, and, and I actually do some kind of business as mission activities, not just on the mobilization. Sorry, I forgot that the best part is my awesome wife. Her name is Sonia. I've got an awesome son named Gabriel, who's an engineer, electrical engineer at a multinational. And, and everything for him is driven by a desire to reach unreached people groups. And he's actually working that career for the sake of the, the unreached. And my daughter, uh, Giovanna, is three years into a five-year law degree and um, she wants to either some sometimes she's she's fighting human trafficking. Sometimes she wants to be a judge here in Brazil and fight corruption. She's going to end up fighting something or somebody. That's all we can tell right now for for the glory of God. Give us a little bit of a 10,000 foot overview of what you're referring to when you talk about business's mission. Yeah, great. So we would typically put it as something that falls into three categories or three ways that it's manifest. It's a it's a concept it's a practice and enough people are practicing it now around the world that we would call it a movement. So it's a concept of practice and a movement. My definition, it looks similar to others uh, who you'll find. It's doxologically motivated. We, we make a big deal about that. So we're going to glorify God. How? Um, it's the strategic use of authentic business activities that create authentic ministry opportunities that bring about spiritual social, economic, and environmental transformation among marginalized people and unreached peoples. That, that's kind of the 
bottom line definition of what I'm talking about. And, and most of us would be talking about something very similar to that. There's not a BAM orthodoxy per se, but it's going to look a lot like that. Maybe you could talk about the goal of BAM. I mean, you've hit on it a little bit already, but I just want to get really practical here. How does it work? How do you bring glory to God through vocation and, and these initiatives? There's this fourfold bottom line that we talk about. So uh, you know, in the, in the missions world, typically we might only be talking about a spiritual bottom line, maybe spiritual and social. In a business world, you're you're definitely talking about a financial bottom line, and and good businesses these days are going to have a social bottom line as well, maybe environmental. Um, and and what we're saying is that good business business activities, and I and I say activities, not just uh, not just a person, not just a business, but everything associated with that. So the business itself as a legal entity, the people who own it and run it, uh, and then the activities, whether it's what they produce uh, in terms of a physical good or, or some kind of service, um, all of those things in a BAM business are designed to... Sorry, my, my brain just switched to Portuguese. And I, if I freeze like that, it's because I'm trying to get back into English. Sorry about that. Um, it's designed to fulfill the three of those bottom lines for sure. So spiritual bottom line, uh, economic bottom line, social bottom line, and increasingly, BAM businesses are discovering that they can uh, operate in a way that kind of helps fulfill or bring about a bottom line transformation that's environmental or ecological. So so it's those four types of impact, yeah, that's another way. Talk about those as a return on investment. Talk about those as types of impact. Uh, talk about those as four pillars of a BAM business, but we're, we would be looking at a kind of fully orbed, fully integrated, holistic gospel transformation. Uh, nobody that I know in the BAM world is going to is going to shift into a social mindset over uh, kind of the, the the broad and full and deep gospel transformation. So it's it's about people coming in contact with Christ, understanding what is salvation by way of Jesus Christ, but seeing that message, not just uh, hearing it preached. So if I put that in a biblical construct, we would say that BAM can fulfill three greats. And, and I took a look, little bit of liberty when I started teaching it this way, but um, what we might call the cultural mandate from Genesis 128-215, um, I wanted to align that with the great commandment and the great commission. So I just started calling it the great mandate. So you got three Three greats. So the great mandate, the great commandment, and the great commission. And if you look at what does it mean to be stewards of God's creation? So so minimally, you're talking about an environmental bottom line there that is entrusted to the body of Christ, not to non-Christians. And if they're making a big deal out of it, we need to be leading the way and showing it's our responsibility. We'll, we'll show how to be good stewards of creation. The great commandment obviously loving God, that you can love God by fulfilling the, the the cultural mandate, the great mandate, and the great commission. So kind of the overarching umbrella, which I mentioned earlier, is it's doxologically motivated. So how do you love God? How do you glorify God? Uh, that's the, kind of the vertical. Well, you fulfill it horizontally by loving your neighbors. So that really kind of covers everything, honestly. I mean, because loving your neighbors, there's a spiritual dy dynamic. There's a, It's a social engagement relationship. Um, it could relate to environmental issues, and it could relate to economic issues like job creation, which is a, a major component of BAM. So, and then go to the Great Commission, so you're you're doing the spiritual fulfillment and all of the others 
but you're doing it not just among your neighbors, if I can say it like this, uh, with the Great Commandment. You're doing it among the nations with the Great Commission. So, so BAM properly understood and and conducted would look like, yeah, we can fulfill the the Great Mandate and the Great Commandment and the Great Commission uh, by way of doing this good business activity, like I, I defined earlier or described earlier. Uh, I noticed, so when I talk to a lot of BAM practitioners, they'll talk about the uh, divorce between the sacred and the secular and how that's a problem. Yeah. You didn't really address that in this definition or how you've described what you do. Can you talk to that uh, that topic yeah. for us? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so so bottom line is, I think that's that's what hinders the ability of the church to fulfill the Great Commission, the sacred secular divide. And it, there's a lot of um, biblical underpinning for this in Exodus 19, verses 4, 5, and 6. I'll, I'll borrow a little bit from Peter as well, but it, it's basically the same thing. That, uh, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He gives that to Israel, and he's saying, um, you're the priests. All of you are priests. All of you are my representatives to the world. Well, we often think about between judges and kings that the people ask for a human king, but what we don't realize is they actually put somebody between them and God. They said, we want a human priest, and we forget that nobody told David or Solomon to build a temple. Um, they they undertook that themselves. The tabernacle, which was portable, um, and and the reason this is important in um, Exodus 19 is because of the Hebrew word segula, which segula is what what we often define as a, a peculiar possession or a personal possession or treasure. Um, a Hebrew hearing segula would have understood portable. The idea is the king takes his portable treasures on his mission with him. So our king takes us, Segula, on this mission with him as his chosen people, as his royal priests and holy nation. So so we lose this completely um, until the New Testament. And then and then we immediately, almost immediately lost it again. And what there there was a convergence of factors between kind of the Gnostic thinking of the age, which was the the spiritual is good, material physical is bad. Um, you've got a couple of early church fathers around the, the beginning of the second century who, for convenience, not not for doctrine, but started to identify themselves as we're the we're the clergy. We have to separate between the shepherds and the sheep. So we're the clergy. We're the representatives of God looking after the sheep. And it developed this kind of clergy laity mindset. And then Constantine reinforced it big time. On, on his massive kind of you know church growth campaign where he he starts to identify as a Christian and then everybody else goes well the king is a Christian now and so we'll be a Christian too and then the pagans have temples but we don't have anywhere to meet the pagans have priests but we don't have any priests and it just kind of reinforces and we've been stuck with that ever since and we've been reinforcing it so the biggest battle that that we have seen uh, in BAM or or anywhere else I think related to kind of the idea of the whole church taking the whole gospel to the whole world is we pigeonhole ourselves into either a sacred or, or, or secular. And so it's this kind of triangle of importance where we, we put up at top, at the top, the pastors, think of Ephesians 4, kind of 10 and 11, no, 11 and 12, where you've got the prophets, the priests, the, um, the masters, the we say masters in Portuguese, Tell me out. It's the teachers, not masters. It's the pastors, the evangelists, the prophets, the apostles, and the teachers. 
um, up here at the top, and then everybody else kind of falls in, you know, the serving professions. They're up there, not quite all the way up there, but they're there, and then kind of neutral professions. And then you got business people and entrepreneurs and, and investors and bankers who are, you know, they can feel the flames of hell on the bottoms of their feet because they're really worth, worthless or barely worth anything for the kingdom of God. And and what what we need to do is invert that um, triangle and understand that it's those five functions in the in the church actually are, would be at the bottom in one sense serving and 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 Paul says it he says um, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and this goes back to who are the saints it's the whole body of Christ so these guys aren't up here telling everybody what to do they're down here equipping the rest of the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. And that's, that actually for me is the one key. If we could help leaders in the church world, so called the clergy, as well as the, the so-called laity, um, which we're all clergy. If, if, if we go by kind of what I just tried to go through quickly, if you look in scripture and the, how many times we are, whether it's Paul, Peter, um, John, Jesus himself categorized us as ministers of the gospel. Paul says we're ministers of the new covenant. Um, Peter says that we're all the royal priesthood, the holy nation. So if we could understand that, then those who are called to, like my son, to engineering, he's called first to fulfill a great commission by way of engineering. If he didn't have this underpinning, then he wouldn't be able to do this with any credibility or any sense of conviction. And so, I, so the big challenge for overcoming that sacred secular divide is that we start in our, our churches, we start in our teaching and we get our triangle inverted so that those who are supposed to be equipping and serving actually view it that way and are then releasing uh, their sheep out into the world uh, on mission. Yeah. This is one of the things I love about BAM. I know Ted does too. Um, all of life is worship, you know, yeah. whatever you do, Paul says to the Colossians, work it with all your heart as unto the Lord. And so I, I love this reconnection of, of work being worshipped. There's a great book that I read several years ago by Gene Veith, a Lutheran theologian called God at Work. And yeah. it was profound for me because it really helped me to understand uh, better the priesthood of all believers um, yeah. and to view, you know, baking bread as worship, as a part of God's larger mission. So I really love that. So one of the things I'm going to, I'm going to press on you a little bit here, um, sure. push on you a little bit. One of the things that Ted and I have heard regularly, and Ted and I've had many conversations about this from BAM advocates, is that the support model, the traditional model of sending and supporting missionaries is simply unsustainable for various reasons, economic reasons, you name it. And so I've heard a lot that BAM is the future of missions, man, that makes me nervous. So I've already revealed my, my deck, sure. you know, my cards. What are your thoughts on this? I feel like that is a straw man in some respects. I haven't heard that a lot. Um, I do, but I do hear it. So, so I'm right there with you. If somebody gets to the point of saying it's it's the one and only model, then I'm not going to listen anymore because obviously there are valid models to fulfill the Great Commission in the same way that we might rely on kind of religious professionals, uh, at least in the past 250 or so years to fulfill the Great Commission. Um, now you're saying you're going to rely on business professionals to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, you're still excluding a large portion of the body of Christ. So 
I'm I'm saying that it's for all members of the body of Christ by way of any profession to um, understand that they're called and, and equipped and and responsible collectively to help fulfill the Great Commission. So I'm not thrilled when people become um, adamant about this model, and hopefully it's just in their enthusiasm. But it would be great if they could learn how to communicate that in a way that says, you know what, there is a uh, an emerging model, and I call it back to the future, because th this is easily identifiable throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in a different conversation, perhaps. Um, I, I think that Paul, although we call him a tent maker, he was a bammer, and, and his, te his apostolic teams were uh, doing business startups, it seems to me, not just planting churches. They were doing one for the sake of the other. Um, so, so I would be inclined to say that BAM is a wonderful option for many people within the body of Christ to get engaged in those three greats, the, you know, fulfilling the great, the cultural mandate, the great commandment, the great commission. You mentioned Paul being a BAMer, a temp maker, BAMer. Uh, it seems to me he was also a support raised missionary. It, it, yep, he did both. He wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So, so here's the thing, and and this kind of goes back to the the absolutist position on you know spam and and nothing else, or the sustainability issue, which is can we keep raising funds? Can we keep relying on a on a donor based model? Um, I I look at Paul and go, that's exactly how it's supposed to be, because Paul wasn't bound by you know, in one world or another, either a sacred or a secular world. And he wasn't bound by one model or another. So depending on his season of life and ministry and, and the, the resources he had available, he was either going to say, hey, send money because we need to plant churches and, and send money because we have poor brothers in Jerusalem who need the money. Or he's going to say, you know what, guys, all right, let's talk about this. I'm a specialist at working with leather. Let's see if we can get a contract with the, the Roman government, with the Roman military, and we'll, we'll make tents for them. But we need somebody to keep the books. We need somebody to go deal with the contract. We need somebody to, to see if we can sell our tents to other uh, potential buyers. And so you've got this whole kind of business dynamic going on at the same time. And depending on the season in life and, uh, and, the, and the actual location, he could go in either one of those directions. I, I'm an example of that as well. I'm, I'm very hybrid. I, I, I still uh, raise some of my support, but I also have business activities. I also teach as a professor. For your viewers, I think, who might have a lot in common with me, I started off with, you know, I met the Lord when I was 16. I felt called to full-time ministry within six months, and it was based on what I knew, which was very little, but it was what my church was teaching. There is this thing called a calling and it's into full-time ministry and full-time ministry is local church based and you're going to be a full-time pastor. Um, if you can't, you'll be a bivocational pastor, but you're, you're, it's all about being local church based. And uh, as that unfolded for me, I was still on that. It's the traditional. So I'm going to go be a local church pastor. I ended up doing that in Belgium for five years and two more in the U S and I ended up starting a mission agency, kind of a traditional model, donor-based. And um, and I did my seminary degree, and I did other studies, and it all looks like here's this typical missionary guy. In the process, especially when we opened our base here in Brazil, I realized that that donor-based traditional model does not work really, really well in countries that either have little vision or uh, little access to resources. So, so Brazil is actually kind of a, a, a stereotypical uh, what's happening in, in where the, 
where the church is strongest and growing, which is all of kind of the developing world, um, two thirds world, majority world, where I would not excuse the Brazilian church and say they don't have money. The Brazilian church does have access to resources if everybody is tied, you know, tithes and is generous, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of people aren't, but the church doesn't, the, the evangelical church effectively really started to take off in the 80s and 90s. It's we're one generation in, kind of two generations in, um, and we don't have a history of, in, in a culture of generosity, and we don't have a history in, in the church of being all about fulfilling the Great Commission. So the the need that we're going to have here is how do we mobilize, for example, the Brazilian church to help fulfill the Great Commission? So this is where I went through a major shift because I, you know, I'm a traditional missions guy and I'm looking at we we're having a real hard time getting Brazilians out of Brazil. Um, and as I look at our whole uh, crossovers in about 35 countries today and, and we're sending from a lot of countries and, and the countries have this very similar dynamic. How do you get out of the place you are into the place you need to be? Getting out is relates to vision partly, but it re relates to financial resources. Um, and then how do you get into a place where you want to be? And, and there are some go-to options. You can go as a tourist, you can go as a student, but then the third obstacle is how do you stay there? Because at some point you're no longer credible. You can't be a tenure student or tourist and have an apartment and speak the language. You've lost credibility early, early on in that process. And then how do you actually bring about transformation you're seeking? So it's it, kind of my pithy way of putting it is how is getting out, getting in, staying in and sinking in. And in 2001, um, God, through one person's very short 10 to 15 minute presentation about business as mission, right when it was, I mean, this is right when it started. Very few people were talking about it. And when I heard that, I was like, one, two, three, four, knock down all of those dominoes. Business, at least from a traditional ministry mindset, was knocking down all of the obstacles, overcoming all the obstacles that I was seeing as a mission leader. So the reason I'm saying that is I hope that people who are listening um, would be interested in saying, you know what? You don't have to be stuck in traditional models. If you're paying attention to what God's doing and how, and how he's doing it, you, there's all kinds of ways that we can put that creative Imago day in us into action. And I think BAM is one of those ways. What about the issue of uh, how you fit into the culture, the local context into which you're working? In other words, how do your neighbors see you when you're cross-cultural? The credibility issue is huge. And I'll share a little bit of my personal experience. We, we, um, when we started crossover in 1987 and we're, we're exploring what that meant in terms of actually uh, establishing a presence, sending bases, training and sending in other countries. I ended up moving to Belgium in 1989. So I was our, actually our first missionary. I was actually doing a tent making gig, so to speak. I was on staff at the International Baptist Church in Brussels, which is how I got my bills paid. And I, and I was a youth pastor and, I, and that's what I was all about. And I loved it. And I was doing it in the international community. And I was single. So I just worked all the time. So I was also setting up crossover in uh, in Europe. And the, I was there for five years. It became apparent that people weren't exaggerating. Some in the 80s had started calling specifically Austria and Belgium the graveyard of missionaries, because back in the day when you would do the four-year um, stint and then do your one-year furlough kind of thing, and, and people just wouldn't go back after the four years because they got they were exhausted by trying to find ways to be 
um, relevant, even even just to build relationships, because they were using that professional missionary model, which is they're getting all of their support from somewhere else. They they pop into a place, uh, you know, they take forever to learn a language. They their neighbors. Now I'm going to be a little bit facetious here, but to to prove a point, and this is what I was seeing happening. They live in in a house, and they've got neighbors next door, and so the missionary is sitting in the, you know, on the front porch, let's, let's say, and, and drinking some coffee or tea in the morning. And probably they're doing something productive, like maybe trying to learn the language or they're having their quiet time. But the neighbor is tracking out the door to go to work and kind of sees the, oh, there's that missionary who's just sitting around drinking coffee. And then eight hours later, the neighbor comes home. The missionary is now back on the porch doing something else, but you know, you know, the idea for the neighbor is that this this person is an ET to me. This person doesn't do anything. And that person was doing stuff all day long. But because they couldn't build a relationship with the neighbor, there's no way the neighbor would ever know that. And it and it builds a barrier. Um, the, the, the way around that has been always tent making. Uh, in this case, I would say business as mission as well. When you are getting up, walking out the door, hey, neighbor, hey, neighbor, have a great day. You know, good, have a good time at work and hope you have a fruitful day and blah, blah, blah. And you come home together and you see each other and you start to talk about your jobs. It, you, you are just a incarnational. You are there. You're living the reality that they're living. What I saw happen in Europe, and, th and this is borne out clearly since the early 1990s is, that that church planting in Europe is starting to look much more like we're going to, as business people or other professionals, we're going to start a Bible study uh, among our neighbors, among our colleagues, and we're going to explore scripture together. And I'm not going to act like a religious professional. I'm just going to facilitate a process of discovery. And at some point, people start to realize, hey, you know, th th this Jesus guy is real. And, and this this what the Bible teaches is transformational. Um, so I am. I'm strongly inclined to think that in order for us to really fulfill the Great Commission in, I'd say, three huge spheres where business's mission works tremendously. It's it's among unreached peoples where you can't access in just about any other way because of uh, government restrictions. It's among the impoverished peoples for obvious reasons, because you're you're stimulating economic activity, you're creating jobs, you're creating wealth. Um, wealth, I don't mean I just mean enough for people to actually have dignified existences. And it works in the secular context really well. So unreached, impoverished, and secular, uh, because of what I just described. The dynamic I just described is similar in places like Japan, for example, where the people are having most traction, apparently, in building relationships and helping people come to Christ are the ones who are also you know, working a day job all the time. Can you give us um, an example? Uh, no names, but in maybe no places, but generally of where this model is being very effective. Uh, yeah, I can. And if you don't mind, I'll do kind of a high level answer and then I'll give one example um, in action. The The high level answer is, and this is this is me speaking with my BAM Global hat on now. Uh, we have national networks that are emerging in places like Brazil. Um, I'm based in Brazil, but everything I do is outside of Brazil. I just happen to still be based here. So there is BAM Canada. There is BAM Germany. There is BAM Netherlands. There is BAM Korea. There's BAM China. You don't hear about that. You're not going to see it anywhere. There's BAM other countries where we don't, we won't say who they are. We won't say where they are, but that exists. There are regional. So BAM 
Southern Africa or BAM Latin America for the Spanish speaking world, there are thematic networks. Um, so there is a network called Coffee as Mission, because if you think of the entire um, value chain from from planting coffee, uh, uh, harvesting coffee beans, and then go all the way to the end user in a supermarket or in a, in a coffee shop, for example, that entire value chain can be infused with some of the most incredible opportunities to expose people to the fullness of the gospel. Um, so, so there's a whole thing called coffee as mission. We have something called the Freedom Business Alliance, which is now 10 years old. And the Freedom Business Alliance is over 100 businesses and growing who exist for the purpose of combating human trafficking. And it can either be by preventing it in the first place, which is one of the most obvious things is create jobs where people are leaving and then falling prey to human trafficking, create jobs locally, dignified jobs that therefore people don't actually have to leave in the first place. So you can prevent it. Um, these businesses also are places of healing and recovery and, and restoration and, and encountering Christ because people who've been abused, who are leery of um, organizations and entities and people in general, but they still have to work and pay their bills. And so if they come to work in a, in a, a freedom business, then they actually encounter uh, the love of Christ and the mercy and the forgiveness and the healing of Christ. So, so kind of big picture, we've got networks that are, that are continually um, coming online. We, there are, and this is in the movement. This is in the whole movement. I'm not talking about just one organization, BAM Global. We're kind of in the center of the movement, but there's all of this amazing activity going on. We've got language. Uh, I think we're in like 25 different languages now, lots of resources. Uh, we, we do events, things like that. So kind of big picture is that. I think perhaps more what you were looking for, I would say, I would use an example of, of one of our very first um, and now I got the crossover hat back on, but one of the very first attempts to do for us to do BAM from Brazil, and, and I won't, I won't say where the people went, but it's Asia and it's predominantly Muslim. So th this, this story was of, um, Carlos and Maria, that's not the real names. Uh, Carlos is an engineer. Maria is an educator. And when, you know, they got married, they, right after they, they finished university and they were ready to go. And they're like, let's go. God, where do you want to send us? And God goes, you know, I'm so glad you want to go, but not yet. And they they didn't really understand, but they went on and started developing their, their careers, started to have a family. Um, to simplify this, I'll just go in 10 year blocks. Like, so now they're about 30 and they're knocking on the door again and they're going, God, we think we're ready now. And by the way, we all, we both went to seminary in the, in the last eight to 10 years part-time so that now we really are ready and, and God wasn't. And so then another decade goes by and their kids are getting older. By now, Carlos has an established engineering firm uh, in, here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, and then, but God's still not ready to send them. Another decade goes by, they're 50 years old this one of their sons now is running the engineering firm and they're they're even wondering do we even ask god if he wants to send us again and and they barely got to the conversation with god he's he's like yep it's now and so you know they're 50 years old well what happened they were they were ready all this time they were preparing and it's that old um adage you know um most christians um say they're willing to go but they're planning to stay and, and this couple was actually planning to go, but willing to stay if it was necessary. And, and they stayed until God said, go. The go was two mission organizations 
one BAM investment fund, together we had an opportunity in this particular country to buy an engineering firm that was either going to go out of existence or um, just be a secular or other religious engineering firms. So, but to do that, we had to have a managing director and a, and a managing engineer and Carlos fit that bill perfectly. So we, we hooked them up. We sent them to this country. Um, Maria, by the way, is a great example of a tent maker because she was a professional educator. So she actually got a job as a, as a university professor. Um, and then Carlos is running this engineering firm with offices in three different cities. Um, one night he's taking an overnight bus ride. And as I said, it's Muslim. So he, he's sitting next to a Muslim and, the, and they're barely starting off on the journey. And the, and the Muslim engages in a conversation because although a lot of Brazilians, this is the great thing about Brazil, by the way, they look, a, a, there is no typical Brazilian. Brazilians fit in everywhere. So, um, Carlos is there, but clearly because of his accent, he was not actually from there. And so the Muslim says, well, you know, who, who are you? What do you, what do you do? Why are you here? And, and Carlos starts to answer. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. And he, the default kind of mindset is for a Muslim from this area or in many others would be like, you're either a spy uh, or maybe you're a trafficker of something, or maybe you're a missionary, which would probably be the worst of the three options. So it's like he, you know, Carlos is not wanting to get pigeonholed into this and he's just having a natural conversation. Um, but when he says he's an engineer, the guy doesn't believe him. And he says, well, what's the name of your, your firm, your company? When Carlos said the name, the, the Muslim's expression was. So Carlos says, well, it sounds like you might've heard of us. And, and this Muslim told Carlos, who then told me, he said, you, you know, the city up in the Northeast. Yes. You remember that several years ago, there was a tragic earthquake. He said, yeah, I remember that. Well, the, so the Muslim said, I lost family members. I lost neighbors. I lost colleagues. They all died because their buildings where they were collapsed on them. There was only one building in that city that didn't collapse. It's the one that you guys built. And he literally said, why is it that we Muslims built garbage for ourselves, but you Christians built something of excellence? And by the way, he knew he was a Christian because when, when he said, where are you from? Carlos said, I'm from Brazil. And he immediately said, the Muslim said, are you a Christian? And Carlos said, of course I'm a Christian. All Brazilians are Christians. You're a Muslim, right? Because everybody here is a Muslim. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just disarmed the guy immediately. So then they get to the point where the guy makes this observation. Why do you Christians do things with excellence? And this was like an eight hour bus ride. And this was a captive audience. So Carlos had the evening to share. He, he literally said, well, I can tell you why if you really want to know. And he did. So, you know, I'm just kind of painting this picture as here's a, a successful business that the, the community, the public recognized that Christians literally saved lives. People did not die because of the quality construction. But then it got to the conversation of there's other types of salvation that we can talk about. So that is one example that of many, many, many that I could tell you in all different areas of the world, all different industries, uh, anything that's licit and that probably doesn't involve trafficking, you can turn it into a, a BAM business. And you, and, and you can see things like that happen. Yeah, what a great story. What a great narrative of the work of the Spirit through this couple and what God's doing. Um, I, I like to ask the questions we close up. What do we learned here today? 
And I'm reminded of something George Miley said in his book, Loving the Church, Blessing the Nations, and that is that God's all people's mission requires an all hands on deck effort. He says, reaching all nations is a complex process. It woos the contribution and gifts of every believer. And so I think that's what we're saying here. To reach the nations, we need a mass mobilization of all of God's people. We need traditional missionaries. We need support-based missionaries. We need marketplace workers. We need folks that are gifted with entrepreneurship and business. So um, let's mobilize all of God's people together. Sound right? Man, yeah. I love it. I love it. And I love the fact that we got to have this conversation. And I hope a lot of people will will listen and, and embrace some of this. You guys, I love listen. I, I know I keep going back to this, but I love listening to your conversations um, with uh, Michael Goheen. Some of the ones that I, Michael O, who who is my colleague at Lausanne, um, uh, Jeff Lewis. I think this is just getting some incredible dialogue going on here. So I hope um, if you're listening to this the first time, I'm just going to tell your listeners, just come back every time because it's always <laughs> awesome. Don't don't let whatever I said ruin anything. Come back and listen to the other heavy hitters. Well, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for your ministry. And yeah. uh, it's fantastic to hear what's happening in this in this sector and just pray for more and more of it. And uh, Lord, yeah. bless the, the Brazilian church that they may bless mm-hmm. others around the world as well. So thank you. Thanks for being on the show today. Great to be with you guys. Before you go, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. The Mission Matters podcast is a partnership of 1615 and Missio Nexus. Check out 1615.org and missionexus.org for more resources on the mission of God and the matters of the mission. The Mission Matters podcast is hosted by Matthew Ellison, president of 1615, and Ted Essler, president of Missio Nexus.